As we uh, enter into this time of worship where we turn to the Word of God, I want to take this opportunity to wish all of you moms and grandmoms and great-grandmoms a happy Mother's Day as well. And one of the things I want to do, it's obviously right and it's appropriate for us to love and honor and celebrate our moms, but I also want to remember and be sensitive to all of you that this day might be a bit painful for. And I want to remember uh, and not neglect you who might be feeling wounded and in pain uh, from whether it's loss or grief or estrangement in any way. I want to make sure that you know we see you and we come alongside as the body of Christ with you as well. Let's turn our hearts and our attention to the Lord as we ask him to fill our minds as we turn to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, showing us the wondrous things, the beauty, the goodness, the truth, and the reality of Jesus. That also you would do whatever it is you have deemed right that we need in our lives, both individually and corporately. I pray, Father, for an attitude, both within myself as well as within all of us as hearers, that we would surrender to the authority of your word so that we would be looking, what, what are you speaking to us today? What are you revealing about yourself that we would see as its goal to know and worship and exalt the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles then to Mark chapter 7 as we're continuing to go through the Mark's account of the life and story of Jesus, and we are at verse 24 of Mark chapter 7, I'll read down to verse 30. It says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syro-Phoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, let the, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is God's word. Tim Keller writes the following. He says, how do you approach God? How do you connect with him? He writes, most of us can think of two options. There's the ancient understanding that God is a bloodthirsty tyrant who needs to be constantly appeased by either good behavior, if not outright sacrifice. Or there's the modern understanding of God. He's a spiritual force, kind of a genie we can access any time and any way we want. No questions asked. But Mark tells us a story showing us that approaching God might mean something else entirely. And yes, indeed, he does. What does it mean? Remember, Mark has given us the interpretive key of his entire gospel, and I'm going to continually remind us of this. Understanding Mark's gospel from chapter 1, verse 1, when he says it is the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that 
Jesus himself, when he first appeared and entered into his public ministry, told us what the gospel about was about when he said, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. In other words, the good news is the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the sovereign rule and reign of God that's always existed in heaven, but that in the person, through the anointing, through the sending of Jesus Christ, God was bringing to earth. So in other words, it was the inbreaking into human history of the rule and reign of God. And what Jesus was doing, what Mark's recording for us, is the beginning of that, the inauguration of that. Hasn't been completed, it's climactic turn was going to be at his death and his resurrection, and that's why we always talk about we live in kind of this in-between time that we call already and not yet. The benefits, the freedom, a lot of the fruit of the kingdom of God has already been here. We have peace with God. We're adopted as his children. We've been justified. We've been declared right. There's a whole lot of already, but we still experience woundedness and pain, disease and hurt Grief and loss, there's a whole lot more yet to come. There's a lot of not yet. And the interpretive key of the gospel is what we have to ask ourselves as we go through the gospel is, what does it teach us about the gospel of the kingdom? What does it reveal objectively about the rule and reign of God that's being inaugurated by Jesus? And in this particular account, kind of as we go through it, you'll see it's a fairly odd exchange there's mention of children eating at the table. I get that. Dogs under the crumbs. Wait a second. Is she insulted being caught? What's, what's happening here? We'll get to all of that, but just at face value, at first glance, we have to ask, what is happening here? Let's ask ourselves the question, what does it teach us about the gospel and the kingdom of God? And we learn two things. We learn that this passage teaches us two things about the kingdom of God. We learn, one, of Jesus' messianic vocation that reveals, too, his missionary heart. The text teaches us of Jesus' messianic vocation that reveals that he's the, if this is the kingdom of God and he's the king, he is a big-hearted king with a missionary heart. And the question we should be asking ourselves, and I want to pose this question because I want you to, what I don't want to do today Mistake I often make, I often teach, 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 and give you an application at the end. I want to do it a little, I'm mixing it up. I came back from vacation, you're getting variety, Jeff, this morning. Okay, we'll mix it up. What I want to do is pose the application at the outset and have you be thinking about it as we go through the text. And the application question is, do I as a person and do we as a church and ministry reflect the big-heartedness, the missionary heart of Jesus, our King? Do we reflect his heart to one another, to God, to our neighbors, in our life and ministry? All right, let's begin at the beginning in Jesus' messianic vocation. Let's set some context here. Verse 24 tells us he arose. He's been ministering in the region of the wilderness, Gennesaret, And he arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was about 20 miles northwest of Capernaum on the Mediterranean Sea in Gentile country. And what is Jesus doing? He needs rest. We've been kind of coming to this theme over and over again. He has been seeking for the last several chapters some privacy, 
some rest, some respite, some Sabbath, if you would, for he and his disciples. He doesn't want anyone to know where he is, but once again, it doesn't work. Best laid plans are foiled once again because we're introduced to an unnamed woman. She's not invited to the party. I mean, all the text tells us, if you read it, is Jesus entered a house. We don't know whose house. We don't know where exactly it is. But this woman comes, and why does she come? Because she's desperate. Her little girl, her young daughter, we're not told her name, or we're not told her age or anything like that, but her little daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. She's obviously heard of the power and the goodness and the miracle-working power of Jesus. And as one commentator puts it, he writes, she knows that she has none of the religious, moral, or cultural credentials necessary to approach a Jewish rabbi. She is, first of all, a Phoenician. That makes her a Gentile. She's a pagan. She's a woman. And her daughter has an unclean spirit. She knows that in every way, according to the standards of the day, She is unclean and therefore disqualified to approach any devout Jew, let alone a teacher or a rabbi. But she doesn't care. She enters the house boldly, without an invitation, falling down, beginning to beg Jesus to exercise this demon from her daughter. Nothing and no one can stop her. You know why she has this burst of boldness? As this writer says, there are several types of people in the world. There's cowards, there's courageous people, there are heroes, there are regular people, and then there are parents. And what do parents do? I don't care what's going on, my daughter's sick, I'm out of here, take care of it, I'm going. We see here, and certainly this text does not tell us everything there is to be told about the nature of faith, so this is hardly to be comprehensive. But it does tell us one thing about the nature of faith that she expresses here. Faith is birthed by desperation. This woman knows, can she take her daughter to a doctor and all of a sudden the doctor make her well? Can she? No, she is without resources. She's bankrupt. She's helpless. She's desperate. That bears out, I will go to the right object, the source, and she turns to Jesus. Her desperation is completely understood and completely justified. Later accounts tell us that with demon possession, they indicate acute convulsions, uncontrollable falling into either water or fire. Her desperation, remember all the things I told you that make her unqualified, Gentile, Phoenician, pagan, woman, she's basically going, I don't care That desperation is taking me to Jesus. But we need to recognize this is more than just an ordinary healing. And Jesus isn't just simply a miracle worker out to help everybody. That'd be a wonderful thing, but he's doing so much more because he's come. He's what? He's the Messiah, and he has a messianic vocation. And his vocation is to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Let's again step back and see what's going on here. And first of all, let's connect this episode with what has just preceded this, the passage that Andrew preached on last week. And what was the issue in the preceding passage, in the encounter Jesus had with the uh, traditions of the elders and the Pharisees of the scribes? The issue was over what makes a person unclean? What makes a person clean or unclean? 
And Jesus has just said something to basically what were the gatekeepers, the doctrine police, the Pharisees, the scribes, that cuts right through their fear-mongering, their protective fence that they would maintain around their own identity. Again, let's ask the question, what makes a person unclean? The Pharisees, they had all sorts of rules. They had all sorts of things that said, this is what makes you clean, this is what, you know, remember what they were saying. Jesus, why, why don't your guys wash their hands? Now look at what Jesus does. Look at this passage right on the heels of that. They've just been talking about what makes a person clean and unclean. Certainly one of the hundreds of traditions the Pharisees have is, if you are an appropriate Jewish person, you don't hang out with a Gentile. What does Jesus do? Come on, guys, we're going to the Gentile town. He shows almost complete disregard, always taking down and destroying barriers. As one commentator puts it, this invites comparison with Acts chapter 10. And Peter's ministering the gospel to the Roman centurion, the Gentile, Cornelius, and his household. If you remember that account, Peter is instructed while in a trance not to regard as unclean what God has cleansed. And what does he do? He listens, he goes, and he ministers the gospel to Cornelius and his household. Jesus' messianic vocation is to unite and bring together and create and form one people of God, made up of every race and tongue and tribe and family and nation. And what you have here, what you have here is almost, William Lane calls this a prophecy, a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the gospel going to the whole world. As a matter of fact, he says, Jesus' encounter with this woman, he calls it the appropriate consequence of what he said earlier when he said in verse 15 of chapter 7, he says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. In other words, hanging out with people who are different from you doesn't make you unclean. You want to know what disqualifies you? Everything that comes from within. Your lust, your pride. I can't help remember the guy who discipled me. He said, you want an easy way to remember Mark chapter 7, verse 15? There's a guy discipling me. A little earthy here. Okay, glad the children have gone to Children's Church on this one. But he says, think of the word pus. Pus is ugly and gooey, right? So you'll remember this illustration. He says, you know what pus stands for? And he broke it down. Pride, unbelief, and self-righteousness. Jesus is saying, you want to know what defiles you? It's not hanging out with people who are different from you. It is not the fear-mongering. Oh, if I touch this person, the slippery slope's coming. Look out. That's not what... You know what's going to defile you? You. You know what's going to defile me? Me. You know what comes out of me? A whole lot of pride, unbelief, and self-righteousness. You know what comes out of you? A whole lot of pride, unbelief, and self-righteousness. And Dr. Lane says... This, is the, this acts as an intended sequel to that because what Jesus, what Mark is contrasting here is the faith, the bold, persistent, submissive, and we'll see submissive in just a second, faith of this woman with the determined pus of the Pharisees and scribes. This is, 
And I guess I'll, you know, one of the things I like to do when I go away is I see a couple movies with my friends out in Oklahoma. We saw Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. So this passage is the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 to the Guardians of the Galaxy 1. I probably won't see a movie for another year, but at least I showed you I did something on vacation. We've got to connect these episodes. That's the scene, and this encounter brings us, so what does she do? She comes, she falls at Jesus' feet, and she begs Jesus, take care of my little girl, take care of my daughter. And that brings us to verse 27, where Jesus said, and just read this at face value. Does this not strike you as odd? She says, take care of my daughter who's convulsing at home, being possessed by an unclean spirit. And Jesus says, "Um, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I don't know about you, but somebody calls me a dog. I'm like, what are you talking about? She doesn't get insulted by this. If you follow the narrative and follow the text, she turns it around and uses it to her advantage. And Jesus lets her. Because she answers him, yes, Lord. So notice their submissive faith. She's bold, and yet she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, what is going on there? He appears to insult her, calling her a dog, but we need to have a biblical view of the history of salvation. What theologians call the unfolding history of redemption or unfolding redemptive history that is followed in the Bible. And one of the things we need to recognize is look at this against the background of the Old Testament. So first of all, when Jesus says, let the children be fed first, he's referring to Israel. Because one of the things we have to remember in Matthew's parallel account of this, Jesus actually makes the point he was sent only to the lost house, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Mark leaves out that exact line. He just has Jesus saying, let the children be fed first. But here he's talking about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus saying, I have to come to them first. Now why is it? Well, it's because of their place in the history of redemption. It has to do with the purpose of their election, what they were intended in God's drama, God's story, God's scheme of things throughout the Bible. For example, in the election of Israel, you've got to think of the Old Testament back- background. Israel was often called the children of God. When the Lord revealed himself to Moses and told Moses, go to Pharaoh, he said in Exodus 4, verse 22, just to give you one example, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And when Paul is applying the gospel to the church at Rome, and he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Why did Jesus come to Israel first and then the Gentile? It has to do with the purpose of their election. And what was the purpose of their election? Well, that goes back to God's creational project when he created a world to be managed by his image bearer, originally Adam, to basically do what? Reflect God's heart, reflect God's glory, manage God's world as God's representative. Adam was to take the sanctuary, the garden of God, and spread it to the ends of the earth. 
even at creation, God's will was always for God's glory to be taken from the garden to the ends of the earth. And he had an image bearer, a representative. Adam was the first elected one, if you would, by virtue of creation. And he was to represent God, taking the glory of God to the ends of the earth. How did Adam do at his job? Did he pass or did he fail? Did he even get a C minus? We know Adam failed, and he failed in his vocation. He failed in his job. And so what happened was God elected, first of all, an individual, and that individual was Abraham, who eventually became a nation. And as one commentator puts it, it says, what was the election of Israel for? Israel were chosen out of the rest of the world to be God's strange means of rescuing the human race and so getting the creational project back on track. But the problem of Israel is that it is called to be God's means of rescuing the world, but Israel is infected with the same problem, the same disease that Adam was. So here's Israel, called to be God's solution to bring salvation to the world, but Israel needs saving herself. So what does God do? He anoints and he sends an anointed one, a Messiah, Jesus, who basically in himself fulfills all the promises, all of the purposes, the vocation, the job description, even down to the curses, the covenant curses of Israel fell upon him. So that's still God's plan, the vocation of salvation coming to Israel, to the rest of the world, is still intact. It's just that Jesus is the new Israel. Which means what else? We're the new Israel in him. This woman, and it must have been revealed to her somehow through the Holy Spirit, gets at least a glimpse of that when she says, yes, but even us outsiders... Here you are, you bring the children in, the dogs are under the table, you feed the children first. What happens to the children? Of course, they spill, crumbs fall, and she with faith says, even we, the outsiders, get some of the crumbs until the rest of the meal can come. And of course, Jesus exercises the demon, is amazed at her faith, and tells her, go away, your daughter is fine. Jesus' messianic vocation to save the world through the means of saving Israel. He just becomes Israel in himself. So it's saving the world through himself. He is just fulfilling that big picture story. Reveals, secondly, the missionary heart of God. Just trying to be as practical as I can for a second. One of the things this tells us is that God's purpose was always the salvation of the nations. God always had in his mind the salvation of, of the nations. All the way back, I referred to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will make of you a great nation. So even though he's calling an individual, it's with a view to a nation. That becomes Israel. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that, always note those purpose words, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is an interpretive key to the rest of the Bible. 
God is calling Abraham, saying, I'll make of you Israel. I'll make you a great nation. And in and through you, I will redeem, I will rescue, I will save my elect people from every tribe, every tongue, every family, and every nation. God's call to Abraham always had in view the salvation of the world. And what you have in this particular text with a woman, a pagan from Gentile Syrophoenicia is a prophecy and a foretaste of the gospel going to the whole world. Mark is giving us a glimpse of that. God's plan was always to save a people so that through them he might reconcile the world to himself. That was always his plan. All nations will be blessed through you. Abraham, after being the recipient of blessing, is to be the mediator of blessing. Think about the text of Scripture, the psalm we had Vic read earlier. Part of the worship book, the hymn book, if you would, of the Old Testament church. When Psalm 67 says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That was the blessing given to Aaron. In Numbers, chapter 6. And then it says that, again, indicating purpose. So in other words, may God justify you. May he smile upon you. May you be under his forgiveness and his favor for this reason, for this purpose, that your way, God's way, may be known on earth. As John Piper says in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, worship is always the goal and the fuel of missions. This is the missionary heart of God. May God shine upon you. May you be under his smile, his favor. Have nothing to lose. Be free because God intends to bring other people to himself through your life, through your witness, through your love, through your ministry. Have you been thinking about the application question I gave you at the beginning of this text? Do we reflect the missionary heart of God? Do we see it as our purpose to bear witness to God's glory through our life, through our character, through our Christ-likeness, through growing in things like the fruit of the Spirit and the Beatitudes, 1 Corinthians 13. We are bearing witness to the wisdom and the goodness and the wise order and the personality of Jesus I don't know about you, but I think the world out there needs some confrontation and some engagement with things like poverty of spirit and hungering and thirsting after justice and mourning. They need some patience and some kindness and some compassion and some goodness. They need truth and beauty and justice. God, through Jesus, in the person, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is filling us with the personality of Jesus so we can be, I read one commentator who said, that we can be like an angled mirror. God fills us with the Spirit so we reflect back to him and to the world his personality and his love. In other words, we're here to bless other people. That means the focus of our ministry should be thinking about how can I make this place better? Spiritually, how can I evangelize? How can I bring Jesus to my my neighbor? Physically, what are their needs? How can I bring Jesus to my neighbor? Emotionally, culturally, in every way, they need Jesus. No matter what it is, 
our task, our fundamental task is to reflect the wisdom and the glory of God to others. We get a foretaste of that in this text. Jesus is bringing the gospel to a Syrophoenician woman, prophesying of the time after his death and resurrection and ascension. Think about the program that is laid out for the rest of the New Testament, for that matter, for the rest of history in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When Luke, recording Jesus' words, says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, salvation comes to the Jew first. We're the renewed, reimagined, remade, fulfilled, not replacement, but fulfilled Israel that God always had in mind so that salvation can come from the center outwards. Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the not yet is not yet finished. It's still going on. So what does that mean? What is happening right now? Salvation is still going to the ends of the earth through the witness and the ministry of the church, through our engagement with our neighbors, through our ministry to our neighbors, through our working with our community, through our loving God and loving people. Do we reflect the missionary heart of God revealed in Jesus' messianic vocation. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would teach us to, that we would simply reflect your heart. I pray, Father, that we would be like you, have your values and your agenda, and simply, it's not a matter of trying to be extraordinary, it's a matter of simply loving people and taking you, ministering you and the gospel to people and where they need, loving them where they're at, Father, we see this in your encounter. We see how you've unfolded history, and we see your heart. I pray that we might reflect your heart. And as we come to your table now, we thank you that your heart is given to us and that we see that you are continually giving us grace. You feed us with yourself. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.